it's like uh, you have this this very like cult following of students and people that continue to follow your work. No pun intended. Yes, you know you. <laughs> <laughs> that that see um, like the value in it. I think that people that don't understand the value just are maybe thinking about it the wrong way. You know, mm-hmm. you you uh, expressed a sentiment in one of your interviews that I really resonated with something along the lines of like, the truth isn't the only thing that impacts history, Mm -hmm. you know? And people don't understand that something doesn't have to be true to be a major force in history. There was a Chinese man in the 19th century. Yes, yes. Yes, who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus. Mm. His movement ultimately uh, caused a war that killed millions. Mm. And the point is, even though we would say this man really wasn't the younger brother of Jesus, it dramatically influenced the history of China and the world. And by the way, mystery is what makes life interesting. New Local Legends Podcast. (laughs) Real small town success stories. We have quite the lineups. The hope that's been bubbling up in the last few years. The finer things about Portsmouth. You just don't see that everywhere. Local legends only. Welcome back to the Local Legends Podcast. This is episode number 49, and we're on the Glockner Speakeasy with author and professor at Shawnee State University. His expertise is in outlaw history, as the website says, on frontier and margins of human civilization. Here to tell us his small town success story, as well as introduce us to his current field of study, secret societies, it's Dr. Mark Marabella. Welcome to the Speakeasy. Well, thank you, sir, for having me here. And by the way, to be clear, I understand that Glockner Chevrolet gives a brand new Malibu to all the guests. Is that true? <laughs> well, it's in another secret corridor here, so <laughs> it's actually up to you to find it. You know? Okay. I'll take a skateboard if they want to do their car. And again, thank you for the opportunity. Of course. Mark, I, and we, I mentioned it on the way down here, but I hope you'd agree. I feel like the Speakeasy is a brilliant venue to discuss secret societies. Exactly. Know? Exactly. They even have a trap door to enter this place. <laughs> That's a dream of mine to have one of those at my house. I don't, regrettably. <laughs> well, yeah, this is uh, this can be inspiration, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe just start by giving us the Wikipedia version of who you are and what you do, Doctor. Yeah, it's just a brief biography. Uh, I'm actually from the Badlands of the Ohio-Michigan border, so mm-hmm. I grew up in sort of greater metropolitan Toledo. And I went to, I'm first generation, um, in fact, my grandfather, who came over from Italy, didn't have the opportunities I had, and couldn't even read and write, and came over here, established himself, eventually got a job at what would become the Jeep Motor Corporation. Mm. And then my father was really successful in business, and he really, I was able to grow up in the suburbs. I went to the University of Toledo, because again, first generation, I didn't really think broader. 
although it turned out to be a wonderful opportunity. They had a wonderful honors program that I tried to replicate here but failed. In their honors program, no, the honors students didn't have to take general education courses. Mm. And that allowed me to take 103 quarter hours of history. Uh, they really do excel in history. I got the history prize from the University of Toledo. They nominated me for a Rhodes Scholarship. I didn't get it, but I was nominated. Wow. And then from there, I went to University of Virginia. I was going to study colonial America. But while there, clashed with a professor there and switched majors. And it was a good move. I always like how bad things in my life lead to good things. Of course. And I ended up going to European history and then decided to go to Scotland at the University of Glasgow. And one thing I want to mention to your audience, because you may have parents out there. Sure. And uh, how times have changed. When I went to Glasgow, they gave me a huge scholarship. Uh, tuition was paid. This is in Scotland. It was started in 1451, this university. Mm-hmm. Huge scholarship with a living stipend. When I graduated with a PhD, I had $28,000 cash left over. Wow. Today, our students are being plunged into debt. Mm. And when I was admitted to Glasgow with a scholarship, Oxford admitted me, PhD program. And today, this is what's sad. I think most parents and young people would say, well, I want to go to Oxford. It's well known. And then you graduate with a $300,000 debt. It never even occurred to me to pay out the money to go there. Mm. And uh, got the degree, and they were wonderful. It was a wonderful place, excellent place. And then, lo and behold, I'm finishing my dissertation, and they start a new state university in Ohio. Thanks to the work of Vern Reif and some others, Governor Rhodes, Mm. uh, Shawnee State was established. And I'm in the very first wave. They hired roughly 14 faculty in 1987. Uh, In fact, Professor Bauer, now President Bauer, was also there. He went into administration. I went into research. Mm. We're both still there, the two survivors. And it was a wonderful place, wonderful opportunity. And again, to your audience, we never advertise correctly our strengths. Mm. We have a private school size with the resources of a state university. Now, the positive side for my career is I do have, I'm working on my fifth book, Mm. And it's on sacred societies. And my books are all over the place in terms of subject matter. And I've been able to do that at Shawnee State, mm. uh, at large institutions. Right. You have to have a very narrow focus because the department may have 50 people and no one wants you stepping into their terrain. And um, you, if you don't write a book that they consider um, in your narrowly focused field, you can perhaps not get tenure. Mm. And that at SSU, I had the opportunity to be free, to be innovative, uh, to do wonderful things. And uh, at least I think they're wonderful things. <laughs> and uh, so it's been an excellent. And I'm now near the end of perhaps my career. I've taught many, many years. But it's I'm looking back, it was an excellent choice. And I just love the place. Mm. And we were talking earlier, you know, well, because of our financial problems, will SSU um, go bankrupt? But fortunately, in the history of the United States, no state university has ever been closed. Mm. What they will do is the state will take it over and fix it if we continue the path we're on right now. But it's been wonderful. Just to preface, Mark, um, you know, 
I think uh, the information you're about to share is like probably pretty new to a lot of the people listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I wanted to share because at the university, I was telling you a little bit, it's like uh, you have this this very like cult following of students and people that continue to follow your work, no pun intended, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that hold your work in high revere that that see um, like the value in it. And I think uh, I think that people that don't understand the value just are maybe thinking about it the wrong way. You mm-hmm. know, you you uh, expressed a sentiment in one of your interviews that I really resonated with, something along the lines of like the truth isn't the only thing that impacts history. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so can you expand on maybe uh, what what you know the value your readers and students are like get out of your work is like what that is that uh, just makes them so fascinated with your with your broad field of study here. Oh, well, by the way, thank you for the comments. Before I address that, I should mention when you mentioned uh, about the truth. Uh huh. Um, and we have these debates presently over, you know, uh, 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 false news and fake news. And sure, so sure. And people don't understand that something doesn't have to be true to be a major force in history. Mm. I think I, you're probably referring to an earlier interview where I mentioned there was a Chinese man in the 19th century. Yes, yes. Yes, who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus. Mm. And he started a movement, which incidentally, uh, they leave this part out, it oddly enough seemed ultra left-wing at the time. He was in, into redistributing property for the <laughs> poor and also women's rights, strangely enough. And this is 19th century China. Yeah. His movement ultimately cost... Uh, caused a war that killed millions. Mm. And the point is, even though we would say this man really wasn't the younger brother of Jesus, it dramatically influenced the history of China sure. and the world. And uh, presently, I just happened to be watching the news, and they were talking about, for example, the economy and so forth. And we have, incidentally, I should mention, myths everywhere, including economics. For example, there's this American myth that somehow the entire world can be as prosperous as America is now. Mm. But for the current world population, and this I'm now taking the estimates of a Canadian professor, for the current world population to live at the American standard of living, we would need three planets the size of Earth mm. because we consume, the Americans consume resources at such a degree. Mm. Uh, so it's an impossible dream. Another thing in economics, they'll have this notion for example, they'll talk about Japan is now in stagflation and it's not growing. Well, that's because the Japanese understand how the real world works. You can't have an economy growing endlessly. It's impossible. Mm. It just is impossible. Uh, a um, uh, Professor Hildago has estimated that if we have just um, a couple percent growth um, forever, in about a thousand years, each person in today's money would be making a few billion dollars per year. Right. Obviously impossible. Yet they keep emphasizing, and if the economy doesn't grow in a certain year, they act as if something's wrong. Now, incidentally, Japan, I should mention again, um, over one five year period recently, their population dropped by a million people. Mm. They understand that there are too many people in Japan. It'll create a short-term problem with too many elderly people, not enough young people to do the work. But over the long term, it'll, be, it'll fix the problem. Whereas the United States assumes we have so many people, especially in my era now, the so-called baby boomers will be retiring, are retiring. We need more young people, more immigration mm. for those people to work. That's a myth. It's going to make the problem worse. Mm. 
Some estimates are the United States should have no more than 140 million people. Mm. And um, we now have roughly 330 million people. Uh, and oddly enough, over 65% of all American population lives on 3.5% of the land, yeah. which is ridiculous. That's why you have these areas where really incredibly costly real estate prices. Which reminds me, too, whenever SSU recruits people, we never properly, faculty and students, we never properly emphasize how low the cost of living here is. It's, you can live well here in Portsmouth, Ohio, on a modest income. Oh, of course. And, I, and, and I'm a, yes. like, a, a rece- like a beneficiary of that. Yes. You know, like when, I, when uh, Aubrey and I were first trying to start our family, we were, that was like a, a massive advantage, you know, just uh, going from the university setting to the community. And then with the addition of remote work, we're in like a, mm-hmm. a really uh, positive kind of situation where we could, you know, grow and develop something incredible, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. more so than even now. But what, what I wanted to point out and the, the utility that I was hearing over and over in your work and uh, as I was learning more about um, your field of study is just there's there's so much value in questioning our own biases about just the mainstream narrative, mm-hmm. you know, um, which there's, especially with the introduction of the internet, it's so many voices. There's like a uh, it's really hard for people to know what to believe and mm-hmm. that can change like mm-hmm. pretty rapidly. And, and I think you would probably agree that it, uh, that changing your mind is a strength. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You should be open to these new ideas. Yes. Uh, but it, additionally, uh, like just learning how to think and realizing that a lot of the things that we thought 10 years ago, what were, was the, originally the mainstream narrative is we know now to be no longer true. You know, yeah. so mm-hmm. you, a very powerful thought exercise. I think that's what students get out of um, the work that you're providing. You know, mm-hmm. well, thank you. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I should mention, and uh, again, I'm stealing the work of others, but the what the internet is actually causing, the same thing happened with the invention of the printing press. Mm. When the printing press was introduced in the middle of the 15th century, it first circulated ideas, helped spread ideas, and, and spread literacy because books became cheaper, more available. Mm. People could access them. But then rather quickly, the authorities by within 50 years determined that the printing press could also be an, an agent for maintaining the status quo sure. by using censorship and control. And we're doing the same thing now with the Internet. In the 1990s, it was freewheeling, open, and more and more it's being controlled. Sure. And, and for example, I, I don't use social media for a reason. Uh, I, I pay for things. I have a website, <laughs> myname.com, and I pay for things. I can post anything there I want. And these people that use social media... Um, they can be policed mm. by the system. And the system is trying to introduce an orthodoxy. They're saying that certain, like we have this going on with the coronavirus, certain things are false news. No, they're not. Mm. They're insisting this is the case. Yes, And it's suppressing. It's, mm. it, we're now entering the, fray, the phase where the internet will be used to control thought. Mm. I've noticed especially now when I'll type in, uh, I've stopped using Google some time ago. And I use uh, Brave. Dot, um, well, it's Brave is a search engine from Europe, mm-hmm. and um, the just because I notice Google will will just prioritize and also suppress certain information. Yeah, they're no, their main advertisers mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Yes, and by the way, when we talked about the unusual, like when I study the unusual, that question, I like to say that uh, uh, most radical and, and heretical ideas 
are kind of like genetic mutations in biology. Mm. When a genetic mutation occurs, usually it's a dead end. It leads nowhere, and the animals become extinct. But every once in a while, there's a positive mutation. Sure. And that's what happens with radical thought. Mm. Uh, I guarantee you that the greatest thinkers, the most influential thinkers that exist right now on planet Earth, you've never heard of. Mm. Because they're being, um, with peer review, their ideas are being suppressed. Mm. Peer review is when you have colleagues uh, look at your writings. And if you are too radical, they will suppress it. They'll, they'll criticize mm. it and they'll stop publication. So peer review is, is closing the minds. And um, the most celebrated authors will be the ones that no one's going to hear about in 100 years. Well, and let's, let's uh, just take that idea and talk a little bit about your, or one more point on your biography here. What were some of your first steps in pursuing this field of study? Where like you're saying, it's kind of like a genetic mutation. I mean, I'm guessing you didn't like just wait around and allow someone to like grant permission for you to kind of go into the fray a little bit here. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, and, and I'm sure Shawnee State was a part of that, like you were saying, but I'm, I'm really curious how, how, you've, uh, how you found success in this field of study. Oddly enough, and I'll refer to how the Vikings referred to the Norns and the Greeks referred to the fates, it's almost as if uh, things always seem to suddenly appear in my life at the right time. I don't know how that happened, <laughs> but it did, like the new university when I was ready to teach. Mm. Now, I was actually a very orthodox, ordinary researcher in the beginning. In my doctoral dissertation, Mm. is on really mainline history. It's on the uh, descent within the Church of Scotland in the 17th century. Mm. And it, it's used in mainline works, uh, and it's just as, it's as um, academic and, frankly, as tedious as you can imagine. Mm. And that was my doctoral dissertation. And I, oddly enough, stumbled into my, near the end of my academic study at Glasgow, I was there for four years, um, I was in James Thin Bookshop in Edinburgh, and uh, which goes back to the 18th century, this bookstore. And I happened to be their their antiquarian books were downstairs, as we are downstairs here today. <laughs> and I I'd been there many many times. In this particular occasion, the wall was gone, and there was a crypt. I mean, it looked like Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> And uh, I see this crypt with these shelves and just wonderful old books. Mm. And they were on the paranormal. They were on legends of, of apparitions, demonic possession, uh, magic, sorcery, witchcraft. Mm. I'm not talking American New Age fluff where some lady thinks she's a witch and is telling you how to cast a love spell. <laughs> I'm talking Renaissance and early modern scholarly works on these subjects and mm. old books. And I bought a ton of them. And then uh, that's how it started. Wow. And frankly, about a month later, this is so typically British and Scottish, I get a letter from a lawyer representing James Thin and Sons. And the they call them solicitors there. And he, the solicitors pointed out in a very you know uh, proper letter that those books that I bought were not actually for sale. They were wow. for, uh, they had purchased at some kind of auction, an estate auction, and he instructed me to bring them back and uh, get a <laughs> refund. And of course, I'm American. I just ignored it. <laughs> Was that like an inclination or like an indication to you that you were on the trail of something interesting? Well, I just thought, what a nuisance, and I'm not going to pay attention <laughs> because I was younger. Yeah, younger sure. 
And, um, um, but that's how it started. And I began to um, gradually research the unusual more mm. and more and more. And uh, by the way, one of my books is the Handbook for Rebels and Outlaws, which has nothing to do with paranormal, but it's actually how, for example, guerrilla warfare occurs, how revolutionary cells are formed, mm. um, and how, for example, uh, um, uh, nuclear weapons operate and how you defend yourself in a World War III. And it's about freedom. Wow. And oddly enough, I take pride in the fact it's probably my most uh, stolen book. It, it's they have it. It circulates on the web. Something like forty thousand downloads. Where I, wow. I got zero from, but I don't care. I'm here to spread ideas, not mm. to make money mm. on my books. So, um, in fact, presently somebody's translating into Turkish. He, he, he so was, interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's just a college student who was interested in it. But again, um, but uh, it, it does say a lot, Doctor Marabella, that you had the. Um, like just the courage to continue to pursue these ideas when you were probably one of the very few that was doing it at your time, do you think? Well, it's easy at Shawnee State. That's mm. one of the opportunities. It was a free, and is still a free atmosphere. Mm. I can do uh, any research I, I wish. And uh, a few years ago, um, a Yale professor got into trouble, or I'm sorry, maybe it was Harvard, because they're all, they're all the same. <laughs> and he got into trouble because he was interviewing people who claimed alien contact. Mm. And um, he took them seriously, that maybe there was something to this, and they almost stripped him of his tenure. Wow. Now, again, just because he's exploring this unusual field, strip him of his tenure, that means essentially losing your job. Yeah. And um, so... It's been, it's Shawnee State provided the sunlight, if you will, and the freedom and the oxygen for me to grow. And um, mm. I owed a lot. Mm. And I think it continues to be that. If we, our new faculty coming in could have the same opportunities. Mm. I'm afraid that at some point we will morph into basically a stunted version of Ohio State. Mm. We're much smaller with the same rules and bureaucracy. And I'm really afraid of that because it's happening at one level. Mm. Um, we have the same, uh, again, uh, the infrastructure is just getting out of control. And since I'm an older professor now, I can virtually ignore all the nonsense going on. <laughs> and I really yeah, do. Yeah. I, don't, I don't go to committees, meetings anymore, uh, and so forth, because I don't need to, and I want to focus on my books. Sure. Well, your, your, your work definitely speaks for the uh, model that you all currently have and the value in that. Mm-hmm. By the way, I do want to take the opportunity here after the first break to uh, sort of a shout out to the royal family. That would be Taryn Mirabello, uh, Claire Mirabello, Violet Mirabello, and the Queen Mother Nadine Maynard. I just wanted to do a, a send out there. That's sweet. But, um, but anyway, in incident, we were talking earlier about uh, students. One thing I am concerned about, because the way, and I tell students this, mm. that you really cannot get in today's world, a doctorate in what I'm talking about. Mm. That I got the doctorate and I played the, the, the game, the regular game to get the doctorate, mm. doing the boring things, the orthodox things. And you get the degrees and then you go to a proper institution that allows freedom. Typically that would be a small private liberal arts college. Mm. And then do the research in the unusual. 
but you really can't, uh, you know, some of the things I talk about in classes and so forth, you really can't get a PhD in that. Well, and that's a good point, Dr. Maribel, where like, uh, yeah, I think that people think too linearly about their opportunities. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? If you, if you want to uh, reach a level where you have a platform and time to research and a lifestyle that affords you the time to dive into what the work you consider important, mm-hmm. um, sometimes you do have to... Uh, you know, like work the model that's available, essentially. Mm-hmm. In fact, I had made a brief reference to only one professor in my life I actually classed with. It was at University of Virginia, and he changed my life because I then left. But I came into that school. I was from University of Toledo, and I, I really, my first seminar paper was ultra-traditional. It was a mm. narrative history. And this professor, he was into the new research where he was into using tax records, government archives, and this sort of thing to prove, for example, what was the economic living level of people living in 17th century New England, social economic, which was to me boring. Mm. But because I wrote a narrative, he threw it out. I had to rewrite my paper. Mm. And I learned from that experience that um, in the rewrite, I was uh, using tax records to determine the social economic status of the first people donating money to King's Chapel in Boston. Mm. Talk about a, a, a yawn. <laughs> but that's the kind of history this particular fellow was doing. Mm. And, um, and sadly, there are people like this. So you, you, again, you play the game, and once you get the degrees, you can do what you want. Mm. But while you're earning the degrees, you have to play along. Well, and you have to just, in general, I think the advice is just to establish some kind of momentum. Like you have to build some legitimacy in your space and among your peers um, before they begin to open up to, like mm-hmm. you're saying, more radical ideas. And that's just, I think, creativity in general. Mm-hmm. You know, creative people uh, kind of uh, go out on the fringes and do things that other people think are going to fail. And then when it succeeds, they copy and buy mm-hmm. in, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, it starts with um, just starting that initial ment- momentum yourself and have the having the courage to do mm-hmm. so. And by the way, while we're talking, I should do this. <laughs> and you know what that is? <laughs> Tell me more, Mark. Uh, kind of moving into secret societies now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for the record, I'm not a, a Mason, although I study the Freemasons and other secret societies. And if someone's at a job interview or uh, someone is a defendant in a court case and he does this, He's indicated he's a royal arch mason. Mm. That's really high level. Mm. Now, most American masons, and there are hundreds of thousands of them, are only in the first three levels. Royal arch mason is far higher. And uh, all royal arch masons are obliged to support their brothers in anything. Mm. So technically, if a uh, juror sees that, he's supposed to vote not guilty. Now, some of them may show some ethical conditions. but <laughs> Or you're supposed to hire the person. Mm. Now, the Freemasons say you will hire the Freemason over someone of equal qualifications, but in reality, it's almost certainly um, they will hire the fellow brother uh, over um, uh, the non-Mason. And again, I don't just study in the book that's forthcoming, the Freemasons I go into also. um, And I was mentioning earlier that there were two types Mm-hmm. And I mentioned the underworld types, like the mafias, the Yakuza of Japan, the triads mm-hmm. of China. These are underworld secret societies. And sadly, they allow ordinary people to become powerful. Mm. 
Um, the Drangheta I mentioned earlier is from Calabria in Italy. It's at the very bottom of the boot. It's historically one of the poorest areas of Italy. And often the richer areas in the north looked with contempt on the men and women of Calabria. They even called them dirt people. Mm. They used a term in the north, they called them dirt people. But through organized crime, these men who were once despised are now feared. Mm. And that's what happens with organization and secret societies. And then you have the secret societies of the overworld. These would be, we mentioned Freemasons, but more importantly, the Bilderbergers, the Club of Rome, Bohemian Grove. Mm. And this is the, frankly, the ruling elite. And they're using these organizations to keep the people with power in power. Mm. And incidentally, uh, the Club of Rome, which was started in the 1960s, and it's made up of, most Americans have even heard of it, it's made up of the world global elite. Mm. They are periodically behind these panics we're witnessing. The population bomb was a big one in the 1970s, that the world was going to be overpopulated. They were predicting the end. Strangely enough, in the 70s, we were going to run out of oil. Mm -hmm. There was that oil crisis in the 70s they were talking about. They're the ones who introduced the narrative of global warming mm. in the 1990s. Incidentally, as recently as the 1970s, academics were talking that we was, were experiencing global cooling, mm. not warming, because mm. it appears as if for most of the Earth's history, we have ice ages. And then there are periodic interruptions of warmth and then reverts back to an ice age. Uh, they apparently are behind the current hysteria over the coronavirus, which from a historical point of view, I'm not trying to minimize the suffering, but it's a really small-scale pandemic. The Black Death in the 14th century in a five-year period killed one-fourth to one-half of everybody, mm. not just the people sick. And um, we're causing this global panic, and there's a reason for this. Thomas Malthus, who wrote an essay on population in the 18th century, he actually says, and he was, oddly enough, a minister by training. He says, um, anyone who promotes um, um, medicine to heal disease, who clears out slums, who eliminates poverty, is doing a disservice to the human race. Mm. He says we must encourage overcrowded and filthy conditions in slums. We must foster epidemics. We must create chaos among the poor. Because if we don't, they will multiply out of control and we're all doomed. So I think a lot of our disasters are actually orchestrated. Uh, there's, there, there's no reason for widespread global hunger, poverty, and so forth. They're being orchestrated. And how do you think, it was an interesting footnote in the notes that you shared with me, but how do you think like a small group of people could like uh, could manipulate uh, the world or like a larger population in general? Like, how do you think those kind of things are I'm glad happening? you asked that because this really ties in. And mm -hmm. again, whenever Americans hear conspiracy theory, they close their minds, yeah. and, and which is ridiculous because in places like Italy and Greece, they in Russia, they assume everything is, is being controlled by some <laughs> hidden masters. Right. And now the way it works, and people think when you, and incidentally, the rule of secret society is actually called synarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, one really powerful group is the round table group mm. that Carol Quigley, Professor Carol Quigley, Quig Quigley, the late Quigley, oddly enough, 
Clinton, Bill Clinton's famous favorite professor at Georgetown University. And when Clinton accepted the nomination, Democratic convention, he actually quotes his professor. Mm. And Quigley talks about the round table group. They don't have secret handshakes. They don't have secret passwords. But he claimed they were an elite essentially controlling the world. And he claimed they also controlled the other groups, such as the Bilderbergers and Club of Rome and so forth. Now, the way this works, and this is what people misunderstand, if a small clique or clique is controlling the human race, you don't have to control what every human is doing every moment. Think in terms of a farm. Mm. As long as the livestock stay in the proper territory, uh, they're left alone. So as long as if you are a human being, a citizen in America or Uganda or in Vietnam, as long, well, to use the analogy, if you're a dog with a leash, as long as you stay close to the stake, no one's going to bother you mm -hmm. and you don't feel any distress. But once someone wanders outside or challenges the system, that's when they act on it. So you mm -hmm. don't have to control all 7.5 billion people all the time. You simply um, control the, over, the general directions of the human race mm. by, again, creating periodic um, uh, economic crises, medical crises, wars. Virtually all of our wars are um, ridiculous. Indeed, I hate to say this because so many people have died and Americans have lost limbs and lives and so forth. I frankly cannot think of any American war that actually helped freedom. I know that sounds bizarre. Uh, if we had not fought the revolution, we would be Canada. I mean, mm -hmm. is that so bad? <laughs> and uh, uh, World War II defeated fascism, although fascism continued to exist in Spain and Portugal. We left half of Europe under the control of Stalin. So these wars just seem pointless, but I think they're being caused. But if you, and incidentally, um, the British in their empire, they, Lord Luger coined the term indirect rule. And this is how the system works, is the British, when they were controlling Nigeria or the French in Chad, they didn't have to control every little village they would control what they called the tribal elite. A chieftain would be appointed a British official, and they let him run his village any way he wanted, but on important matters to them, he had to listen to what the British said. And in like matter, that's what happens in America. We have a tribal elite that answers to invisible faces and mm. voices. George Bush Jr., is related to 16 American presidents. Uh, and in fact, virtually every president we've ever had is related to other presidents. Why are the same people always running the country? Mm. And if you look at their cabinets, uh, for example, the Biden administration just has a lot of retreads from Obama's administration, who had retreads from the Clinton administration. Bush had retreads from his father and from Reagan administration. You get these, and they're the tribal elite. And incidentally, they don't have to be intelligent. They just have to be properly located, and people defer to them. Uh, as a citizen, you should automatically vote against anybody in these elite groups. But people just think, oh, he's a Bush, or it's a Clinton. Let's, let's go with it. Mm -hmm. um, and you should always put in new blood. And I should mention, 
every political system in history, every ancient Rome, ancient Sparta, ancient Athens, medieval Europe, samurai Japan, imperial China, modern United States, the whole system exists to keep the people with power in power. Mm. And when anyone comes up with any kind of notion that will take out the power elite, they will be taken care of and crushed. And incidentally, we have presently, last I looked, each taxpayer now owes $200,000 national debt. Mm. It's just terrifying what they're doing. Well, what, you, you had another footnote um, in your notes here that was talking about the RICO laws in the U.S. and how that might impact secret societies. Do you think that has yes. like, uh, changed the game? I'm, I'm glad kid- you asked that because, in fact, what the American government's been doing, and, and by the way, I should mention that in the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, there were two federal crimes. Mm. And now there's 4,000. There's another example how they're, they're destroying our freedom by multiplying laws. Now, what happened was, and again, I have a feeling most Americans don't realize how, for example, organized crime works. The money flows up mm. in, in the mafia. So all of the crimes are being committed by the low-level members and the wannabes. For example, um, the United States probably has 1,700 made men. These are actually mafia members. And to be a made man, you have to kill people. You have to be a murderer. Every one is a murderer. That's why no mafia oso will ever admit that he's a member or that the mafia exists. And what happens is um, the ones who try to join will commit the murders and crimes. And what they do is they share their wealth. For example, if you want to become a gangster, you knock off a jewelry store And then on your own, you go to a made man and give him maybe half of what you stole. And they're doing this to earn credibility. Right. But here's what happens. In the high levels, mafia leaders are committing zero crimes in the classic mafia. Now, regrettably, this is everything so corrupt. Since the 1970s, the American mafia is actually so corrupt, they can't even follow the rules anymore. <laughs> I mean, it's just unbelievable. In the classic mafia from Sicily, any mafia leader, by the time he got to the top, he was committing zero crimes. And he just collected money. Sure. So what's happened is the federal government that went after the mobsters, they could not get the leaders because they weren't doing anything mm. wrong. So we've invented fake crimes. One is money laundering. You hear this term all the time, but Americans don't think about it. If, I, if you sell drugs, not he doesn't, but if he does, <laughs> and then I, I, um, uh, I give you $100, and then you go buy a Whopper Jr. at Burger King, yeah, that's money laundering. Huh. Now, that should not be a crime. It's if you spend ill-gotten money, they've made that a separate crime. It's ridiculous, but it is. Mm-hmm. Because they, they would catch the mobsters that way. Mm. When I gave money to the godfather and then he spent it, they would arrest him. Now, RICO, again, it's the Corrupt Racketeering Organizations Act. They were essentially could not catch these people. Mm. So they invented a fake crime and said that if you were indulged in several types of uh, criminal activity or uh, extra legal activity over a period of time, that's a separate crime. Mm. Now, it's, I, w- I, I agree with, okay... If you kill somebody, that's a crime. 
if you sell this illegal contraband, that should be a crime. But they're creating a new crime to get these people. Mm. And we've let it happen. Now, in terms of secret societies, the net result has been the really dangerous ones that I guarantee you your audience has not heard of. Army of God, for mm-hmm. example. The fin- Phineas Priesthood. I'll mention the Phineas Priesthood. It's, in, it's called uh, leaderless resistance now. Because of RICO and these, and incidentally, in American laws, this is also wrong, but it happens, because I'll have criminal conspiracy charges, which means if I belong to an organization, which the government declares is a criminal organization or a terror group, mm-hmm. that's why anyone who joins a group today is an idiot. It really, an imbecile. <laughs> is if I belong to an organization, let's say you could use the Klan. KKK, or a left-wing radical Black Panther group for black freedom, if they decide it's a, and they did in the 1960s, declared a criminal organization, the Black Panthers, if um, anybody in the organization can be conv- is guilty of any felony committed by any member. So there's 20 men in, um, well, there was this one in the 1980s called the Silent Brotherhood. It was mm-hmm. an anti-federal government movement. There were only about nine members originally. They declared it a criminal organization. So if one man commits a theft or a murder, we're all guilty of it, if I'm in it. Now, who, who would think that's fair? Right. I join a group, and somebody is a hothead and kills or hurts somebody. I'm now guilty of that murder. And I'm not talking about you get two years in prison. It's You're now guilty of murder. Mm. Well, what these groups have done to avoid this, like the Phineas Priesthood, the Army of God, is they've gone to leaderless resistance, mm. which means there's never any meetings, there's nobody ever is in control, and they are lone wolves. Uh, the Phineas Priesthood, uh, they've actually suppressed news about it because it's such a dangerous group. They're extremely right-wing, um, frankly, white racist Christians. They believe that white people are the chosen people of God, and they will kill these are men, uh, uh, mixed-race couples. Mm. They'll shoot them. They also will kill abortionists and also gay people. Mm. And um, they will kill and then disappear into... uh, And what they do is they share an ideology. They never have meetings. They just do it. And so they're just getting that information on like an online forum or something like that? You can find it in books and so forth. Now, Mm. even more dangerous one... is the army of God. Mm. Now, these people are not racists, and they're not uh, in any way hateful, but they are convinced they're, they're, they're very strict Christians, and um, they have a book called the Army of God Manual, hmm. which I talk about in my one alternative religions class, but I say do not try to find it on the internet, do not look for it, and don't look for it if you're in the audience. <laughs> you will immediately come under a government watch list, mm. and it gives... Um, it simply instructs members how to disrupt abortion. It gives 100 different techniques, ranging from going to public restrooms and abortion clinics and using a certain type of chemical that smells like vomit. Mm. And when it is in the uh, circulation system, everybody gets sick and runs out of the... And they, they say that the clinic will reopen in two days, but at least you've stopped some killings that day. Then they also have at the very top what's called terminal courage. If you are uh, have a, a, a disease or an illness that your life is about to end, 
they encourage members to go out and kill somebody, mm. actually shoot an abortion doctor mm. or blow up a clinic. And their book, the only thing that unites them is this Army of God manual. Hmm. And they read it and they act on it. And it's interesting. Again, no one's heard of it because they, they, they do intentionally suppress information about it. Oh, and I should mention, uh, probably especially the males in your audience, some of them, have heard of something called the Anarchist Cookbook, mm -hmm. in which it tells you how to make bombs and so forth. Warning, it's fake. Huh. Uh, the man who wrote it was a 19-year-old, and his father was in military intelligence. It's clearly a government operation. It was published in the 19, late 60s or 70s. I forget the exact date. And if you actually mix some of the explosives, you'll, you'll, kill, your, you'll kill yourself. Huh. Well, that's an old trick. They will intentionally sabotage the information. So if anybody tries it, Right, they and died. just eliminates that person. Um, the South African under apartheid did a similar thing where they were secretly distributing weapons to black freedom fighters. Mm. And the black freedom fighters thought it was coming from Russia or communist China. But in fact, the weapons were designed to explode when you use them, mm. killing the operator. So, um, and by the way, again, to the audience, it's very important not to look these things up on the internet and we're talking about, because you will be monitored. Mm. Um, where the United States is really bad at catching overseas terrorists because nobody, for example, wants to go to Afghanistan uh, and live in a house with a dirt floor and get intestinal parasites over a 10-year period. And what they prefer to do is sit at computer screens in the suburbs of Washington and monitor radicals here because mm. it's easier, safer, you go back to your home right. at night. So every radical group in the United States is penetrated. Mm. In fact, often the crimes are by agent provocateurs. They encourage the hotheads Interesting. to commit the crimes. That happened in the apparently happened in the, the attempt to abduct or kill the governor of Michigan. Mm. There were operatives inside the group that were encouraging this behavior. Mm. Um, oddly enough, in 1993, the first World Trade Tower attack, when there was a truck bomb in the parking garage, mm -hmm. At the trial, they caught everybody involved. And at the trial, the government produced video of the men mixing the bomb. And not a single juror seemed to say, how did you get that video? Uh, yeah, well, it's sure. because we had an operative in the group. He was an Egyptian military man, and he actually warned the FBI the attack was coming, and they, they didn't believe him. Mm. But all these groups, in fact, one I mentioned earlier, and this was an anti-government group, uh, the leader was burned to death um, in, uh, early in the 1980s. It's Robert J. Matthews, The Silent Brotherhood. There have been a couple movies, but they're always so distorted, they're not worth it. One's called Talk Radio. One's, I think, called The Brotherhood. But they distort what actually went on. And they were, uh, they're depicted as these really horrific racist types. They're actually more anti-Semitic. And they had this fantasy that somehow America was controlled by Jewish power and all this. They called it Zog. And they were trying to detach five states. It's called um, like a, a white homeland on mm. uh, the Pacific Northwest. Well, at any rate, what struck me, it came out in the trial of the survivors. Uh, Robert J. Matthews had formed in high school an anti-income tax secret society mm. of high school boys. This is in the 1960s. The government penetrated his high school club. Mm. I mean, 
It shows how thorough they are. I mean, sure, yeah. Th- there could be, you can't imagine an FBI operative controlling uh, somebody penetrating a Portsmouth High School secret society, but oh, they can man, do it. Oh, man, yeah, it sounds unfathomable. Yes. Like you would think they would just have no interest in a place like this, but I'm sure that's not the case. You know, you talked about some signs and symbols associated with the secret societies, this with the Freemasons, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found your mention of these things in your notes pretty interesting myself. So consider this like the secret society lore lightning round here. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Uh, what What is the, why is the number 13 significant? I think people would find that interesting. Yes, oddly enough, it's um, it, usually to Christians, it symbolizes bad luck because mm-hmm. uh, there were uh, 13 at the Last Supper when mm. Jesus eight with the apostles, there were the 12 apostles and Jesus. So then the number has taken on significance of unlucky and bad. But in fact, in various traditional lores, um, you'll, you always will notice when it comes to numbers, um, odd numbers pop up in religion, magic, and secret societies. Mm. Religion, for example, you see seven in Judaic Christian lore all over the place. Mm-hmm. In Freemasonry, you'll see three. The triads in China, in fact, their name even refers to three, uh, the heaven, earth, and human society. And um, odd numbers, this goes back to the Romans, dominate even numbers. When you add an odd and even number, the odd, it's always an odd number result. Mm. So any odd number, and the big ones are, again, three, five, seven, nine. And strangely enough, often 11 is missed, but 13 is very significant. If you're in magical groups, especially various satanic groups, they will glorify 13 because it's they're trying to be anti-Christian. Mm. And it's now there's an old superstition. If 13 people sit down together for a meal, the youngest one will die within a year. Mm. So there's all these um, traditions. Well, that's a super popular one, too, because of like Friday the 13th, you know, yes. like in the movies, like all that. Um, how about what is a heart attack gun? That one sounded interesting. Oddly enough, that came out during the Senator Frank Church hearings. We were having, it was a brief period of time in the post Watergate. And by the way, one of the reasons Nixon was so hated and despised is he was not from the power elite. People mm. don't realize that. Mm. He was an interloper. And uh, they took him down. And uh, in the post Watergate period, they were hearing, they had congressional and Senate hearings. And the most the congressional hearings were classified; that wasn't released. In the Frank Church hearings in the Senate, um, they they actually showed it was an invention by the CIA. And what it does, it's actually more like a uh, air gun, although it can kill you. It fires a projectile made of ice, mm. and the ice contains a lethal poison. And if you're walking down the street and someone does uses this on you, you will feel a slight pricking sensation, like an insect bite. Mm. And then you'll be dead in about a minute and a half. Mm. And it causes a heart attack. Or I should say it causes symptoms similar to heart attack. Sure. Technically speaking, if you do a full autopsy and the person knows what to look for, he could find out perhaps that what was going on. But it, it it's, um, it's really difficult to tell. And this sadly... Every once in a while, Breitbart, who was anti-Obama, uh, he announces that he is going to provide evidence definitely demonstrating that Obama was not a legitimate president, and he, hmm. he dies of a heart attack a couple days later. Is it a coincidence, or is it uh, true? Sure. And in fact, once you start looking, there are all these really prominent people that when they come out 
um, the man who filed the first lawsuit and only lawsuit against the Federal Reserve, which incidentally is a secret society. Their books are secret. And um, it's not a federal government office at all. We call it Federal Reserve, but it's no more federal than the Federal Express. They're private bankers determining how much interest to charge. Mm. And he, uh, this man filed a lawsuit to open up the books, and he drops dead in his 40s of a heart attack. Mm. So it could be coincidence, but um, when you see certain people um, drop dead, just be very suspicious. Mm. Um, how about red polish on one fingernail? Yeah, that's a sign of being a, a, a member, a Satanist. Mm. In fact, Sammy Davis Jr., your older members will uh, recognize his name. He was a prominent singer. He was in the um, uh, associate of you know Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and so forth. Um, he would have it. He was actually a member of the Church of Satan. Mm. Uh, typically, um, there will be um, the, the small groups. You don't need recognition symbols like the round table group I mentioned earlier. But when the group gets too large, you need symbols to recognize strangers. Mm. Um, I'll give you a few. For example, uh, if I were to say, this is my friend, that means if I'm in the mafia, mm. and by the way, I'm not in the mafia. I've got the Italian <laughs> name. Indeed, I forgot to use that Very joke. Very suspicious, Margaret. <laughs> I, I forgot to use that joke because when people ask me, like, uh, why are you at, you went to Scotland and Europe sure. to go to, how, why did you come to Shawnee State? And I will say, and it helps with the Italian name, Witness Protection Program, they'll never find me here. <laughs> um, if I say, if I'm in the mafia, and I'm not, and I say, you are my friend, mm. that means you're not in the mafia. Right. If I introduce you as you are our friend, you're in the mob. The triads will use three fingers of their left hand, touch their heart, and then reach to the sky. That's a Chinese mm. symbol. Um, there are um, their secret language, the thugs. They were an Indian serial killer group. They use an, what's called an argo, in which you use ordinary language, but it has a different meaning. Huh. Now, Americans are familiar with this from movies. The, for example, in the 1920s, the American mafia was using baseball metaphors. That's where it comes from, a hit. Oh, interesting. That, that they were not, they were, when they were being recorded, they would not say, we want to kill someone. They would say, we're, they use baseball images. Right. Well, they were probably constantly being monitored on the phone and those kind of things, right? And, and this is an example of how they're less intelligent now because now they say whack. I mean, you can figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> it was rather clever. Or they would say, we will take a contract out. Mm. See, that got into the media then. Sure. We now know what it means. But originally, if you're listening to it, it could refer to a business contract, mm. uh, which oddly enough, it backfired during the post-9-11. They arrested a group of men in Buffalo who were Muslims, claiming they were plotting a terror attack, and they claimed they were actually planning a wedding. Mm. But the CIA and FBI insisted that they were, when they talked about when will the wedding be held, it meant the terror attack. They were claimed they were actually talking about a wedding. Interesting. So it can backfire. Um, how about the crucified rose? What's the symbolism there? Oh, that's the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross, mm. one of the most famous. In fact, allegedly... Some serious scholars, so-called, would claim it never existed. Uh, the, 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 the Russians have a term for, it was a 19th century Russian academic that he referred to timid prudence. And um, scholars are afraid to be sensational or be too daring. So they, historians in particular will always deny anything that seems extreme. 
And mainline history says the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross never existed. Mm. But in their lore, they were a secret. There was a, a man, um, and incidentally, in, he's named as Christian Rosenkreutz, but we don't even know that's his real name because that was from a later source that um, he uh, was a, had accumulated, accumulated great knowledge, especially in medicine and life extension and so forth, and how to make gold, and that uh, established scholars rejected him. So he formed a secret society, the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross, mm. and their um, symbol is CR and also uh, the Crucified Rose. Mm. Now, skeptics have pointed out that the crucified rose is also on the um, family emblem of the Luther family, Martin Luther. So mm -hmm. they said it was just a cover for a Protestant movement. They did think the Pope was the Antichrist. Mm. And allegedly, they still exist. Now, again, mainline historians would doubt it. And that they, wherever they live, they adopt the customs and the clothing and so forth of the people they're living among. They always have to... Their profession is always medicine. There will be physicians, but they may not charge money for their practice. Interesting. It has to be free. And um, they uh, again, it's the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross. There's so-called Georgia Guidestones. You can actually, they're down in Georgia. Mm. Some anonymous man paid a fortune to have them erected, and they have eight languages on them, and they are allegedly they're, uh, the, the man who uh, purchased this under a fake name calls them, called himself basically uh, uh, a code word for, for the Rosicrucians. Mm. So there may be a connection here. Oh, one more here. What is twilight language? That actually comes from tantric religion mm. in uh, the East. Twilight language is when, again, um, everything has a hidden meaning. And if you don't know what the hidden meaning is, now remember in Argo, they use ordinary language, but it has a hidden meaning. In Twilight language, it appeared to be gibberish. Mm. One of the best known examples of that are the Druze. They exist in the Middle East. They're in Syria and modern Israel. They believe in reincarnation. They've not accepted a new member since the 11th century. They believe their membership is closed. Mm. And they believe that Druze always come back as Druze. Their scriptures, even they, they first of all, they're, they're hidden to outsiders, their scriptures are. And they have two groups of people in the Druze, the enlightened and the ignorant. The ignorant follow certain moral rules, and that's it. The enlightened get the secrets of the Druze religion. Hmm. And a few cases, well, first of all, they never print their scriptures they're hand copied, and a few outsiders have stolen the scriptures. They are so mysterious, we can't even understand what they're talking about. Mm. So Twilight Language is, even if you read the document, you don't know what it's about, which I should mention. It reminds me of something. When I thought one of the flaws of SSU when I first arrived, there was no history and tradition. Mm. So I've tried to create myths mm. and legends there. And my, I think my best achievement, when they built the library, there really is a treasure map buried under the library. Really? Yes. And it's in, I, I arranged this with a class at the time. It's in code. If you, uh, and it's designed in such a way, it's in the foundations. You have to actually destroy the building to get to it. <laughs> I wanted long term, not some mystery solved in 50 years. And um, 
if you get, it's in a container that's sealed with nitrogen, and, and so that prevents decomposition. Wow. Closed container. And then if you see it, you will see what's called the uh, enigmatic figures. Uh, that's actually a Freemasonic code. Anyone who knows the is a Royal Arch Freemason could could decipher it, and then it, you break it, you get a poem. But then, what people don't realize, I also put what's called a skip code. A skip code is the real message is, for example, every fifth word or every eighth word or third word. So you get a poem, and there's a skip code. Oddly enough, my Odin Brotherhood book has a skip code in it, uh, in the dialogue part. Wow, you, you, I, I hit a code in there. Mm. And um, so it's supposed to tell you where some gold bullion is. Now, the amount there is not really worth the effort. <laughs> but my goal was was to create this mystery. I wanted people 300 years from now. Because over time, the rumor will increase. It'll get larger and larger how much gold is there, mm. more and more mysterious. And we'll have people digging up Sauda County looking for this crazy <laughs> professor's gold treasure. But Man, see, we need, we need traditions. And um, I went to a, was offered a job at Centenary College some years ago. It's, it was a women's college in New Jersey, and they mm. had a wonderful one. There was a dorm room. It was a beautiful college. I think they've used it in Hollywood films because it had the iron grating and so forth. And um, they had a, a, a female student in the 1880s had committed suicide. She had a broken heart. And her room was kept sealed, and they would tell the girls that are in the dorms that her ghost walked at night certain times. Wow. See, you, you need traditions like that. Mm. Scare the freshmen. <laughs> yeah, it's a unifying experience as well, certainly. yeah. Which reminds me, too, I, I've not been doing it because I had some health issues, but we started in the early 21st century, the Other World Society. Mm -hmm. And I would teach students how to do a real seance and about mm. ghosts and, and hauntings. Well, I remember you yeah. it, like on it was Halloween night or sometime around Halloween where you'd speak in the UC. Yes, it? I'd give a, there was an, I still, in fact, um, give it. Although the mm. last couple of years of this coronavirus, not, not, I had to do it online. Mm. In fact, you can find the, if your audience interested, it's on YouTube, for example. Mm. And uh, it's on all kinds of magic, sorcery, superstitions, and so forth. Well, one last question then. What role does magic play in secret societies? Because you shared that a little bit. Yes. See, some are by nature magical. Mm. Um, and um, uh, the OTO, for example, was a magical secret society in Europe. The Order of the Temple of the East, it refers to. And you will get uh, witchcraft. Also, probably the most infamous one and most fascinating will be the Red Sect. I'll close with that. Mm -hmm. That's a oops, secret society uh -huh. in Haiti. And um, voodoo is misunderstood by Americans because they either demonize it as devil worship, which it's not, or they act like it's just a sort of folk religion, which is far more complex. I find it fascinating because it preserves a lot of ancient beliefs. Mm. Within voodoo, and by the way, an original religion, and I'll try to condense this because it gets into a lecture, but an, orig sure. uh, an original religion, there's no devil in original, traditional, pre-Christian, pre-Jewish mm -hmm. religion, but gods have their dangerous side. And uh, voodoo actually has that. There's no devil as such, but some gods mm. are dangerous. And if you're really desperate, your company is going bankrupt, um, um, you need to win a presidential election. <laughs> if you're really desperate, 
you contact a red sect sorcerer, hmm. and he will summon the Petra Loa, they're called. They're these dangerous gods. And um, they will do, they, they will demand a high price, but they will deliver the goods to you. Wow. And so there's an example of a secret society with it just immersed. It's the whole thing is magical nature. Mm. And incidentally, um, our world is based on, we think, science. And in science, they go for the regular. For example, we think there are laws of nature. I don't think there really are laws of nature, but we think there are. Mm-hmm. And they ignore the anomalous. Mm. For example, if a ghost were to walk through the wall right now, we would, uh, because we're modern people, we'd probably try to deny it, that our own senses. Mm. In magical thought, it's the reverse. They tend to ignore the regular. Mm. And then, oops, they focus on the unusual. Mm. So if you find a rock with unusual shape, uh, a tree with unusual shape, you use that as a magical device. So um, magic does exist in especially some secret sites. And frankly, others, uh, they don't even realize when they're doing it. Freemasonry is filled with it, but they don't often realize it because Mm. it's so old. The modern members are not familiar with what they're doing Mm. in terms of the significance of it. Sure. In terms of magical lore and so forth. So, um, but mystery, and by the way, mystery is what makes life interesting. Mm. And um, this is why we'll um, always have groups like secret societies because they're mysterious. And frankly, I should close with this, um, what secret societies are based on, the entire world is a rigged game. Mm. The best people are not getting the scholarships, they're not getting the jobs, they're not getting elected president. It's a rigged game. And if people join these groups, uh, it gives them a leg up. That's why they join them. You're rigging the game in your favor. Mm. The Mormons claim the very first secret society was in the Garden of Eden. Cain made a deal with the devil to for murder and plunder. Mm. And there's an element of that in some of these secret societies. I, I love that that the uh, like the best things in life are mysterious. That like incredible. Yes. Um, Dr. Maribel, your your work is very expansive, and I certainly want our audience uh, and interested parties to know uh, how to find you and follow your upcoming publications and um, appearances or whatever uh, wherever you're going. So tell us a little bit about how we can find you online. Yeah, easiest. I've got my own website, uh, Mark Mirabello, again, M-I-R-A-B-E-L-L-O.com. And all my uh, little biographical details, uh, information on me, my books. I'm on my fifth book now. It should be done, I hope, within a year. Mm. And um, I have a wide variety of interests. And it also lists my courses and various information and all my interviews. Mm. I've probably done now, probably, I think it's up to about 45 in and, uh, and like events. multiple appearances on the History Channel as well, correct? Yes, That's yes. incredible, incredible. So that was actually uh, the best part of that was just it was fun, and, and it's not only how they do that. On, on I was on Ancient Aliens, uh-huh. but it's not when you see the program. What they do is they film you for about four hours and they really? fire questions, and then they take little clips. Oh, sure. But often I'm saying what I really didn't say. They clip it in such a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it was fun to be on it. Of so. course, of course. Well, um, 
I just want to mention, you know, I, I think what you're doing is important. The work that you're doing and just the thought experiments that you're exposing students to um, is really valuable work. So I've gotten value out of it myself and speaking from just uh, my own personal experience of uh, learning more about what you do. So appreciate your work and your time with us. Okay. Well, thank you, sir. It's uh, been a pleasure. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Time for